0: 2, Acts chapter number 2, and we'll be dealing with the subject tonight of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, primarily Acts chapter number 2 by way of a summary of the chapter. We won't read all the way through them, but we want to just give you an overall summary of the primary events or the primary occurrences in this second chapter of the book of Acts. And they certainly, and in many ways, and rightfully so, ought to uh, arrest and claim our attention. As the uh, present church of God, uh, we ought to be uh, very much concerned and very much interested in what is being said here and what is being referred to as Luke records for us this great outpouring of God, the Holy Spirit, upon his church. Now, there are a number of things we could go to, and we could point in Scripture, and we could say, What is that one? Uh, very pinnacle, that one moment in time when we look back and we say, uh, when, what, what do we really see occurring here in the life of the church? And I would submit to you that this is a very important event, uh, not just in a theological and a doctrinal standpoint, but also from a very practical uh, application and very much concerns us today. Now, as we approach this chapter, we, we want to be careful And I think it's also important that we're prayerful when we approach this. Uh, Luke, uh, Acts chapter 2, especially the first half of this, has been misconstrued. It's been misunderstood by many. Uh, There are many who have tried to reenact or are saying what uh, the church needs today is we need a, 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 a repeat of Pentecost. We need to see these events happen again. Uh, and then there are others who just simply say, you know, that was an event in history. Uh, the pouring out, the coming of the Holy Spirit has no relevance for today. And so we need to be very careful because both of those perspectives are in error. Uh, we do not need another Pentecost. We don't. There we, There is no purpose another Pentecost. And we certainly cannot ignore it as if it's not an important event. But as we look at chapter two, we need to recognize that some of these gifts, especially some of the ones we'll refer to tonight, the gifts of the Spirit were temporary signs. Uh, They were signs that were given for a specific purpose, and we realize that those purposes were being fulfilled perfectly uh, in the time in which they were being given. But that doesn't mean they don't apply. Uh, There's a great difference between something that is and something that can be applied. Many make the mistake of saying, well, this does not apply to us because we are not using these temporary gifts or temporary signs any longer. They do apply because what this teaches us in Acts chapter two is really the empowerment of the church. It teaches us that what is the power that drives the people of God? Uh, So here's a statement that we we have to settle this in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is exactly the same now as he was then. The Holy Spirit is exactly the same now as He was then. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. And when we read the scriptures that say that God does not change, that also includes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has not changed. Whatever He did for the church of God in, at Pentecost, He is able to do for the church of God today. Now, does that mean that it's going to be the application or the use of these temporary signs? No, those temporary signs do not mean that because they're not used today, it doesn't mean that they don't apply to us today. The power of God has not diminished one ounce. God is just as powerful as he was at Pentecost and he is today. God the Holy Spirit is still with the church of God in this world. Every believer today, everyone in our midst today, possesses the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. So we did not, in our opening prayer tonight, we did not call for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell here. We didn't ask for his presence to show up because he's already here. He's present within every believer. So if that's the case, that the Holy Spirit is the same powerful God and he's the same as he's always been, we should expect the power of God to be working among us. Now, is that gonna show up in the speaking of tongues or these temporary signs? No, but the power of God is the same. You see, there are so many, especially the charismatics that are making a grave mistake by saying, and all of these signs are to be utilized now. Well, these signs had a temporary purpose. And so we'll learn that throughout this chapter. Now, we're not going to cover all of this tonight, so uh, we're just kind of giving you the the overview of this as we begin. So verse 1 in chapter 2 uh, gives us the day of Pentecost. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background tonight on, on what the day of Pentecost was And because sometimes we we just say the day of Pentecost was the coming of the Spirit, and that certainly is true, but what was happening that day? What was the significance of it? So notice what it says in verse one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting." Now, this day of Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Pentecost. Now, there were three feasts that were commanded by God, and you could read about these in Leviticus 23. That entire chapter deals with the required great feasts that were given by the commandment of God. That's why there was this great crowd that was assembled at Jerusalem was the fact that, if, that God required every male Israelite to attend these feasts every year. So this was a common gathering day of one of these feasts. Now, the three great feasts were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Pentecost. Now the Feast of Passover we're probably familiar with because that's the feast that originated in Egypt when the judgment of God fell upon Egypt. You'll recall the story in the book of Acts, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. The blood of the lamb was applied upon the lintel and the doorpost, right? And so when judgment fell, God looked upon the blood and passed over every house where the blood was applied on the door. The Passover lamb that was was, uh, there was a representation of Christ, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for us. It is by the blood of Christ we have been saved. So Jesus was keeping the Passover feast with his disciples just before he was crucified. When we observe the Lord's Supper this past Sunday, it was at a Passover meal or a Passover feast that Jesus initiated or instituted the Lord's Supper and then gave the commandment to observe that in remembrance of him. So this Passover feast is one we're very familiar with. Leviticus 23 verses four through eight talks about the feast of Passover. Leviticus 23 9 through 11 talks about the second of these three feasts, which was the feast of Passover first fruits. Now, this would have been on the Sunday after the Passover. Uh, Israel would bring a handful of its first fruits of the harvest, and it would wave those those fruits before the Lord. Now, what that was signifying, that every product, everything that the soil produced, everything that man labored for and toiled for, was to show that it was from God. So it was, a, it was a demonstration that everything we've received is from God himself. Now, of course, there's a lot more to these two feasts. This is not exhaustive tonight, but this gives you an idea of these three feasts. So the Feast of Pentecost is the third one, and that's the one that talks about the day of Pentecost. Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 21 tell us about this. Now, this particular feast was held seven weeks or 50 days after the Passover. So we know that we know now by time frame, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, this was 50 days after the Passover feast. Here, the Jews would actually renew their vows, and they would rededicate themselves to the Lord God. Now, To our study tonight and what we're looking at tonight, this is also the day that the Holy Spirit was given exactly as Christ had promised all the way back in Acts chapter number one, when he said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So don't miss, again, not to be too academic here, but don't miss the reality that this day of Pentecost was something that was already occurring. This was not something brand new that now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came that day, let's give it a name. This was the day of that third great feast. It just happens to be that that's the day the Holy Spirit came, right? So when you hear people say, we need another day of Pentecost, well, what are you saying then? We need another feast day, right? Because that would be the accurate way. So we need our day of Pentecost, so that'd be 50 days after the Passover. But the reality here is, is this was the appointed time and the appointed day in which God himself chose to send forth the power or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. So this feast of Pentecost, it was in fact a celebration, but it was also a remembrance. It was a time of remembering what was given upon Mount Sinai. The day of Pentecost actually acknowledged and remembered the law being given. So this feast happened on the first day of the week, which was putting an additional honor upon that day. Now, we understand that Sunday, the first day of the week, you often hear it called the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day, right? So this day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came, is not insignificant. It came on the first day of the week. He came, the outpouring was on the first day of the week during this Feast of Pentecost. It places a great amount of honor on the Lord's Day. So we see that it's very important. Now again, that's, that's probably not as detailed as, as we need to go, but we're gonna call that sufficient for tonight. So this, this day of Pentecost, was a, it was a memorial of sorts. But I want you to notice where they were. And I think this is important because now you've got this, this Sunday, you've got the Lord's day, you've got this first day of the week, They were all with one accord in one place. What's that teaching us? That's teaching us that these these individuals, these disciples, were gathered on the first day of the week. What do we do as a church? We gather on the first day of the week. That's the time when we typically will come together. We're gathered on a Wednesday night, but the Lord's Day was the day in which the day of Pentecost was, and it was the day in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out. But don't miss the beauty here of what was happening here. They were with one accord in one place. Now, most likely this place is still in that upper room, right? Possibly it could have been in a temple where they would attend at public gatherings, but most likely this was the upper room where they had met many, many other times but it was a place of Jerusalem. Why, because that's the place where God, where Jesus Christ told his people to go and to assemble and wait. So this day of Pentecost gives you an idea of what was happening. We see that they were in one accord, but notice what it says that, when did the Spirit actually come? It was on the divinely appointed day. Not a day early, not a day late, It says that the day of Pentecost was fully come. This was the divinely appointed day and the appointed time. Here, the disciples were gathered. They were in one accord. They were in one place. And we see the next verse, and suddenly, right? So you've got the first day of the week. You've got the traditional yearly feast of Pentecost. And now you have the fulfillment of the promise Here comes the Holy Spirit, and it came, he came rather suddenly. Now, the word suddenly is a very descriptive word, right? It's a word that tells us that it came, it did not gradually build up. There wasn't some kind of a warning. There wasn't kind of some, uh, the lights didn't get low, and there wasn't some change in the atmosphere. It just, he came suddenly, there came a sound, Right, and this is really important what's gonna be said here, and this is why you really need to be meticulous when you study the word, because you can get this wrong just by how this is worded. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, or like a rushing mighty wind. It doesn't say that a great wind blew through, it said whatever that sound was. Does everybody see that? Whatever that sound was, was like a rushing mighty wind. We have a lot of people that read this and they say, oh, the Spirit came and the wind blew and it was blowing. No, it says that it was a sound from heaven. It's really important to study and see that. As of a rushing mighty wind, it was a sound of rushing wind. We can all get that in our mind tonight, what that is. When you hear the wind blowing, right, you hear the sound. It doesn't say there was actually wind. It just says there was a sound. Now, this, is, this was a symbol, right? So what's happening here, the emphasis is not so much on what the sound is, but the wind throughout the scripture is also as a symbol of deity, right? So it is a picture or an emblem of the Spirit himself, right? If you study the Hebrew and you study the Greek words for wind and the Spirit are the same word. So what's being represented here is the wind is, is a symbol signifying the presence of the Holy Spirit. Wind is also in the Bible frequently used to represent the power and presence of God. Ezekiel 37.9 and Job 38.1 give that comparison of the power and presence of God being described like wind. Now, the sound of a rushing mighty wind symbolizes the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is very similar to what Jesus told Nicodemus back in John 3 and verse number 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But this is the, during the, uh, the meeting. Uh, he says, Jesus says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Even Jesus, when he's speaking with Nicodemus, emphasized the sound thereof, right? He, he emphasized it was the sound, but you cannot tell when it, where it comes from and you can't tell where it's going. And he said, everyone that's born of the Spirit is born that exact way. So you see that like the wind, you have God, and this is a demonstration that this is something being controlled by God. It's not being controlled by man, it's being controlled by a sovereign, almighty, irresistible God. So very important to see that. So this rushing mighty wind, it was a sound from heaven. Uh, Some commentators say maybe it was almost like the sound of a thunderclap. Who knows what exactly was, but it was the sound of a wind. It's the way of the Spirit. It's like what we just read in John 3. It came with a great noise, right? It was to signify this powerful working of the Spirit of God. Now, again, we get caught up on that and we don't realize what's actually taking place here. What's the intent of this? Well, notice that it says, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, right? It filled the whole house, Uh, not just the room, but the whole house, right? Now, this, this is being, the Spirit's being given for something. Right? God didn't tell them to go and wait there at Jerusalem just to send them some insignificant sign. He sent them there because what they're getting ready to receive, what's happening, is not only important, it's necessary. Right? He's not just giving them something that's, hey, this might be good for you, this may not be good for you. No, this is an emblem of deity. Right? At the same time we see the wind, he says, and there appeared unto them cloven or divided tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, right? Now notice again, cloven tongues, right? Divided tongues, right? This is, the the tongues were divided in order to signify that, and again, we'll see this as we study Acts chapter number two, that these tongues were given that God is going to divide the nations, Right? And this is gonna be a division to the knowledge of his grace, right? Again, but you see how it's being described and you see that it's described like as of fire, like fire, right? Now throughout the Bible, the fire is an emblem also of deity. Uh, we could go back to some Old Testament accounts. God appeared to Abraham as a burning bush or a burning lamp in Genesis 15, Moses, in the burning bush in Exodus 3. The symbol of his presence with Israel was a pillar of fire, Exodus 13, 21 and 22. He showed himself before Elijah as a, by a devouring fire, 1 Kings eighteen thirty eight, And then Isaiah 6, Isaiah's lips were cleansed by a live coal of fire. Hebrews 12, 29 <clears throat> tells us our God is a consuming fire. Now these men were not set on fire, right? They didn't. They did. They weren't engulfed in, in flames. But notice it says that the cloven tongues were like as of fire, like it, right? It was. It had the appearance of like fire. The fire here uh, was being shown as a powerful symbol of the presence. Of God. So what I want us to think about tonight in the, the brevity of the time that we have is to think about what was being given to them. What was the Spirit being given to them for? Right? Because, I mean, we could, we could very much get bogged down in what was this fire, what was this wind, and we could miss why was the Spirit being sent in the first place. And if we miss that, then we're really missing what God's word is intending and where he's placing the emphasis on. Because notice the result, verse 4, of the coming, this mighty rushing wind, these cloven tongues like fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Right. So what were the immediate effects of the holy spirit's presence well first of all we see the phrase they were all filled with the holy spirit or the holy ghost now to be filled with the spirit by according to ephesians 5 18 through 20 simply means to be controlled by right now a lot of people are again we have charismatics who are saying you can be saved and not filled with the spirit and so they will call for a a filling and if you've ever seen this happen um, it is it is as anti-biblical as you can possibly get they will ask for this filling of the spirit and they will tell you listen you can be in the child you can be a child of god and yet not filled with the spirit in other words you don't have his presence well here's something that's exactly true tonight you are indwelt by the holy spirit of god tonight at all times if you are a child of god you have been filled with the holy spirit you have been he has taken up residence within you right to be filled with the spirit is to be controlled by him it is to be filled with his grace it is to be filled with the influence of the spirit so every single believer tonight has that indwelling now keep in mind The Holy Spirit has always been present, but the way the Holy Spirit now is coming here in Acts chapter number two is something that is completely different than what they knew before. This is not the Holy Spirit's beginning. The Holy Spirit was all over the Old Testament, but now you have him indwelling. You have him coming in and taking up residence. Now, again, a lot of people are going to put the emphasis on this next phrase. They missed the filled with the Holy Ghost part and what that means, and they immediately say, and look, and began to speak with other tongues. There's where they, that's where they're driven to the emphasis. Now, they fail to look at the rest of that also that says, as the Spirit gave them utterance, right? So here are these individuals now being filled with the, the Spirit and His influence, Right, They're filled now with the gifts of the Spirit. Don't lose sight of that. And now they are endowed or able with miraculous power to speak. They're going to be able to speak in order to carry forth the gospel. Speaking with other tongues does is, is not mean a heavenly language. It means the ability to speak a language that had not been learned In other words, it was not a meaningless repetition of unknown sounds. It wasn't someone just simply speaking gibberish. What they're saying and what we're going to see in this text is that they were speaking so that clearly others could hear what they were saying. If you go into a charismatic church today and this ever happens... You will see someone will stand up and they will talk and it's gibberish. It makes no sense at all. And the the crazier thing about it is is nobody knows what that person is saying. That's why in Corinthians, Paul said, if someone speaks in tongues, he was only allowed to speak in tongues if there was an interpreter. It wasn't an unintelligible language that nobody understood. It was was a, a, a language of another nation but you had to have an interpreter. It's quite startling when you see this happen in a church today, nobody knows what that person is saying. This is not what speaking in tongues ever was or ever will be. It was enabled to speak. Notice he goes on, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, there's a great emphasis there, out of every nation under heaven. It's important. Here you've got Jews, part of the dispersions that had taken place who are now coming back into Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Why were they confounded? Were they just taken by the mighty rushing wind and the fire? No, they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. That's why they were confounded. Right? The emphasis is not on all these things that are happening. They were confounded by the reality they could understand. Right, so the gift of tongues was the ability to speak a language that had not been known. The gift was a temporary gift bestowed upon the apostles. And it identified them as God's inspired messengers in order to confirm the writings as the word of God. Now what did the disciples and what did those in this generation not have? They did not have a completed copy of the scriptures. What do you and I have? A completed copy of the scriptures. This was a confirming sign that these men that were speaking with tongues were speaking not only by the authority of God, but that what they were speaking confirmed that they were exactly who they claimed to be. Right? We already have the complete revelation of God in the scripture. There is absolutely positively no need for these temporary sign gifts today. There's no need for a person to be able to perform a miracle. There's no need for me to speak in tongues to confirm God's revelation. That's what they were confirming. So very important to keep that in mind. Notice they didn't speak here just simply gibberish, but they actually spoke properly as if it had been their native tongue as the Spirit gave them utterance or gave them the ability to speak. Right? It was the Holy Spirit that furnished them not only what the content was, but the language. Now, there's no doubt this was a miracle. There's absolutely, positively, no doubt this was a miracle. But notice that these Jews, these devout men, these were men, of course, that would say they had the fear of God before their eyes, and this brought them to even be able to see and to understand that what they're hearing was the kingdom of God. Verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans. They pick up on something really important here. Every one of these speakers who's now speaking in these tongues they have not learned are Galilean. They recognize, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. How do these Galileans know how to speak all these different languages? How is this happening? Right? And that's, that's the miracle that's happening here. They observe that all of these that are speaking, and here God has chosen these men, these disciples, to be able to speak. They go on and they say, and How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? In other words, we hear one or more of them speak our native language. Now, this is kind of hard for us to put ourselves in this account, but it's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of them thinking they hear. They're actually hearing because they are speaking these native tongues that they don't know. These Galileans didn't know, and yet the Spirit gave them utterance to speak in languages that they did not understand. And yet here they're confounded they're amazed by the reality how is it and they go on and they give a list of all the different people who were able to hear it Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome Jews and proselytes Cretes and Arabians we do hear them speak in our tongues They were hearing them speak in their tongues because the people that were speaking were speaking in their tongues. They were speaking these languages of this catalog of people that are given here. Now again, why was it necessary in this day? Because they did not have the completed revelation of God's word. These were confirming signs. What is our confirmation now? Our confirmation is is the word of God. God's revelation has been confirmed by the word of God. Then notice what they spoke. And again, if you're not careful, you miss, we miss the importance of this. They were not just speaking unintelligible. They were not just making one-off statements but look again, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues. And here was the subject matter, the wonderful works of God. What, they, what were they talking about? They were talking about the works of God. They were not talking about that which was social. They was not talking about issues of the day. They were speaking the wonderful works of God. Here you have God empowering these men to preach with power, You see God enabling these sinners from all these places in the world to hear, understand, and believe the gospel of Christ. They were able to hear the wonderful works of God in their own language because these men that were speaking were speaking their language. And what was the subject preached? It was the wonderful works of God. They declared the wonderful works of God. Now you'll notice verse 12 says, "...and they were all amazed." and were in doubt saying to another what meaneth this in other words what's this all about there were those who did not comprehend what was happening that day and their conclusion is verse 13 there were others that said what means all this they were curious others said these men are full of new wine in other words you had two camps here you had one group that didn't understand what it meant you had another group saying these are just a bunch of drunks That's as simple as you can put it. But yet, what they were declaring was the wonderful works of God. Now next week, when we get into what's often referred to as the Sermon at Pentecost, which is the very next phrase in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the leaven, lifted up his voice. He speaks a sermon, right? And what is the subject of his sermon? It's the wonderful works of God. Right? So here we see Peter, now empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, preaches by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the subject matter he puts before the people is the sovereign Christ. From Acts 2, verse 14, all the way until you get to the end of this chapter, you see Peter preaching a sermon on the wonderful works of God, the sovereignty of Christ. Right? We see the words preach. We see the words preaching. We see the word preached all throughout the book of Acts. We're going to look at this in depth more next week, but I want to give you a couple subjects that Peter deals with on this day of Pentecost sermon. He deals with free salvation through the merits of Christ. He deals with the sovereignty of God. He deals with the depravity of man. He deals with the crucifixion. The burial, the death of Christ, the exaltation, the glory of Christ. Repentance. Talks about repentance and remission of sins by the gift of God. Why are they now able to preach and to speak in the way that they are? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. See, when the power of the Spirit came upon them, now they are carrying out the very work in which Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to wait until the coming. These things that they are proclaiming, these things that they're saying were to give God all the praise and the glory and the honor for what was taking place there. Now again, those last two verses in chapter two, verses 12 and 13, really give us an insight of how how the coming of the Holy Spirit was received. Amazed, but the object was too much for them to comprehend. They couldn't fathom What are these things that are taking place before us? What is the significance of this? And I think that question, what meanest now, that typically leads us to consider they at least were curious enough to give Peter a hearing when he stands up and he begins to speak. But what about the second group, the others? It's interesting, one word can set off really an entire uh, train of looking Who were these others? Who were these mockers? Now, there are many commentators were in agreement with this, that the others here is a reference to those who would have been known as the native Jews, or even maybe the Pharisees, who simply saw what was taking place, and they said, oh, these men are just drunk. They've gotten into the new wine, and they really are not saying anything Maybe it was because they couldn't hear it. They couldn't understand it. God did not allow them to understand it. God did not allow them to hear it. The apostles were not babbling. They were not speaking without able to be understood. But here's the key. Only God could give the hearer the understanding to hear it. Dear friends, that's no different than how you and I came to know Christ as our Savior. We were given ears to hear. When we pray that for people, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we understand that it's by the sovereignty of God that opens up the ears and the eyes to understand even these basic truths. Because if you and I, in our natural depravity, we just simply read the word of God, we would not understand any of it. We only understand it because the power of God is given to us to understand we cannot read this account too many times and we can never read it without asking God to reveal in us and reveal in our midst the fullness of the Spirit's power now I said at the outset that the power of God's Spirit is exactly the same as it was at Pentecost So what is a a church or an individual saying when they say what we need is another day of Pentecost? Well, here's one conclusion they're coming to. They're saying that God has lost some of his power. That's not biblically true. If they say we need what they had at Pentecost, they're saying that what we have now is not enough. The problem is not the power of God and the Holy Spirit. The power is in people not being yielded the Spirit of God. God has never lost his power. God has never lost his ability. You and I, and even as our church, there is absolutely nothing we can accomplish outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. But do we rely on the Spirit? Do we truly believe that we can do nothing without the Spirit of God? Now, there are those that say, well, the only way you can have the power of God is to have these sign gifts reinstituted. It does not demonstrate the power of God to see someone stand up and speak something that nobody understands. There's no power of God in that. But yet, you would be led to believe that if you can't speak in this gibberish language, that you don't have enough faith. The Bible doesn't say that. This was a temporary sign gift that was given exclusively to confirm the revelation of God. How do we know we don't need it any longer? Because we have the full revelation of God in the scriptures. When someone asks you a question, why don't you believe that we can speak in tongues to perform these miracles? Because you need to understand what was the purpose of those sign gifts to begin with to confirm the revelation of God. We already have it confirmed. So what do we pray for? We pray that we would live yielded and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit would convert those that gather to hear the word. Now, church, when we're sitting here on a Sunday morning at 1130 and we're intentionally preaching the gospel, you realize what we're asking for? We're asking for the Spirit of God to convert the soul. We're asking for the Spirit of God to bring the saint to repentance who's living in sin. We're asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring those who have turned away from God and to bring them back. The power of the Spirit is just as necessary now as it was in the day of Pentecost. When Jesus said, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, he was telling them, because without the Holy Spirit of God, you can do nothing. Now I know in our Baptist churches, we are so afraid of the Holy Spirit because the Charismatics have have done this to us. That now that if you talk about the Holy Spirit or don't ever use the word Holy Ghost, even though that's what the scripture says, don't allow the third person of the Trinity to be negated because of heretical teaching. The power of God is in the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that regenerates the soul. It's not the preacher. It's not your ability to convince them. It's the Spirit of God. Lest we just, when we pray, and we pray, we just simply say, God, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Make them willing to believe. If you pray with knowledge, you're actually praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work. Every Sunday morning in this place or in our prayer meeting, we pray for the Holy Spirit of God to work because that is the only power that converts. It's also the only power that changes the heart. It's the only power that's going to do a work in your family. It's the only only power that's going to convert your children's souls and your grandchildren's souls. Yet people are buying hook, line, and sinker for all these false signs that are nothing but signs from the devil himself because they are unnecessary and they're not scriptural. The power of God, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, no matter if it's me or any other man who has ever stood behind this pulpit, the success, I, I use that word a little bit with hesitancy, but the success in preaching the word is entirely dependent upon the working of the Holy Spirit completely and anything that we do as a church is fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God it is God's Spirit that must be at work now next week we're going to start digging into this sermon of Peter's and you'll notice that it runs from verse 14 all the way to verse 47. So that's quite a sermon, and there's quite a lot of material in that. We're going to take it in, in pieces and try to work through it. But if you want to read ahead, read through, and just look at now, again, this same Peter who denied the Lord three times is now the Peter who's standing up, and he is speaking with a boldness that has been unseen up to this point. He's speaking with boldness that is only boldness that comes by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's pray together and then.